Welcome to Who Knows Real Estate, episode 22, Achieving Asymmetric Returns Through Syndication. I'm Kevin. And I'm Jim. And today, our guest, Hunter Thompson, shares his lessons learned raising and investing capital in top syndications across the country. Today, we have Hunter Thompson with ASIM Capital and the Cashflow Connections podcast. Hunter, welcome on. Would you mind giving our guest a little bit of background about yourself and ASIM Capital? Yeah, sure. So I'll keep it brief, but I think from a lot of people's perspective, the reason that we're drawn to this world of non-typical or alternative investments is that we find ourselves willing to go right when people are looking left. And that's one of the reasons I love this industry. It's that we figured out at some point in our lives that on some scale, we have been lied to about the way that money works and money and finance and wealth being like one of the most important pillars of our lives. It's this uncovering of you know, red pilling when it comes to kind of finance. And so that happened to me, not necessarily in 2008, but in 2010. So when 2008 happened, I, saw, I really looked at the global economic picture and thought, wow, this is what everyone's been talking about in terms of blood in the streets. I started investing in the stock market, learning as much as I could, just obsessed about economics generally, but specifically using my understanding of economics to grow wealth and, and create income. And so the stock market being the most dominant vehicle for investing, that's where I went first. But 2010 represented something that I don't think enough people talk about at all, which is the European debt crisis. And that was basically the moment that I realized it doesn't matter how much I study, it doesn't matter how many advantages I have or don't have, if there's something as obscure and ridiculous as the debt service coverage ratio of the Greece government can impact my US-based stock market investments, then we're going to have a real problem. I don't know if it's going to be next year or the year after that, but that reality makes it completely unpredictable and predictability of outcomes on the forefront of my mind as an investor. And so, I transitioned out of the stock market, started becoming interested in real estate very quickly. And because of the timing of the market and because of where I was located, California, I was able to leapfrog a lot of the more introductory real estate strategies and start my career in the world of syndications. First as a passive investor, and then as someone who uh, pooled investors together to invest five, 10, $15 million, and therefore leverage the investment amounts to get favorable terms. And so that's kind of the story of you know my background as an investor, how I went from one investor, just me, to five to 10 to 100 to now hundreds uh, through ASIM Capital. Yeah, that's awesome. And I appreciate that background. Would you mind like just explaining kind of where ASIM Capital is at, whether it's in funds raised, um, assets under management that you guys are involved in? Like, what does that look like? Sure. So We've, I've raised about $35 million of equity from investors and leveraged that you know, somewhere around two to one or so. So roughly $100 million of commercial real estate. Uh, we recently did a non-real estate ATM deal, which I'm really excited about. It's been very challenging for me to uh, find underwriting assumptions that I can get behind in the real estate sector. Not that it's not possible, it's just challenging to find. But the ATM business is very much like the mobile home park business was when I started investing in 2012, where if you have a group of smart investors in a room and there's 10 of them and you say, I'm really bullish on the ATM business in 2020, four will probably leave the room before you can explain the thesis. And I have found that that's the perfect ratio of smart people that pass on deals because the headline 
is so hard to get over. It doesn't matter what the thesis is, the strategy, the demographics, and it lends itself to multi years of really favorable returns on a risk adjusted basis. So um, yeah, about a hundred million dollars under management. And a lot of that's due to the fact that we've been really cautious about scaling and investing in deals that don't perform. Um, we have a, a tremendous capacity uh, to invest significantly. Um, you know, our last deal, we raised about $5.4 million over 30 days. And we didn't really push the issue, send a couple email out, send a couple webinars out and the money just comes through, but it's because we build up capacity, build up capacity, build up capacity. And we've built a great relationship with our investors as well. That's awesome. And can you like, tell us a little bit about your journey um, starting out? I think you're in California, right? In LA? Correct. Correct. Tell us about your journey starting out and how you got into your first couple of deals. What did that look like to kind of get you to where you are today? So it's interesting because some of the things that I did at the time were out of necessity, but the way the industry changed, it ended up making me look like I had the foresight, which is just not the case at all. But um, the first deal that I really pooled investors together for was a mobile home park offering. And the offering was a fund. It had multiple different properties in it because the mobile home park business lends itself uh, to such a structure because mobile home parks, especially back then, you would buy them for a million or two million or $3 million, which means you're only raising half a million, a million dollars of equity. And the purchase prices just aren't that large. So in order to scale, you really need to have a fund that has the ability to purchase multiple assets. And so the fact that they had 12 months to raise the money for this fund, it allowed me to have the flexibility to say, if I create an entity and I pool investors together to invest in this entity, I'm going to have plenty of time to be able to make this economically viable. My goal was to raise a half a million dollars. It was the first fund that I created. And I had a contract with the operator that said, if you invest half a million dollars, we will give favorable terms to your investing entity for doing so. And I'm sure now this has become popular in the industry, but at the time this was grueling. This is negotiation. This was there weren't already plans in place to give preferential treatment for more significant investment amounts. Now it seems kind of like industry standard. So I went out and had a luncheon with some of my more wealthy friends and their clients and family and CPAs and attorneys. And I got 30 people in a room, all were accredited investors. I gave a presentation that I would give today with no problem. I'd already established a track record and I wasn't um, as well-spoken maybe as I am today with all the work that I put in over the last decade, but certainly could communicate effectively. And at the end of the presentation, I had a piece of paper. I put it in front of everyone and said, you know, write whatever you want to invest on the paper, fold it and give it back to me just so that you can keep it private. And it's a good thing I did that uh, because the grand total that I raised was $0, not a dollar. And I mean, this almost ended my career. I mean, it was emotionally, it wasn't the financial component. It was the emotional component that if you are considered yourself to be a capital raiser and you raise $0, yeah. you can't go worse than that. It's not like I could have lost $100,000. So it's like, I failed. I mean, that was just the reality of the situation. And so I basically sat for six months and wondered, what am I going to do? Am I going to go be a dentist or something? I mean, I love this industry, but that was just a really weird wake-up call. And for the rest of my career, I realized I didn't want to try to put everyone in a room and try to convince them in 30 minutes to invest in the mobile home park business. I needed to create a highly scalable, replicatable, uh, 
infrastructure that attracts leads, nurtures them, and converts them to investors without taking a lot of my time. And that's what my book is all about. And we're doing a summit that I, I talked to you about offline. Um, that's all about attract, educate, nurture, close, because it's the only way to do this business meaningfully. That's really interesting. Uh, that had to be hard to hard to handle and like you know your closest friends and colleagues who you think would be this is a no-brainer opportunity and they get a big fat zero it has to be hard um but i think it's smart that it sounds like you're almost transitioning or you have transitioned to doing more inbound marketing where you're creating a lot of content to help people and then it attracts the right people and builds trust can you talk through some of those things that you're doing um to help attract the right kind of lps to join asim capital yeah i think that you know, I have been able to uh, do something somewhat inadvertently that resulted in not only the business being scalable and lucrative, but also allows me to have a great life um, without fear of like being canceled, <laughs> despite I do say some offensive or unpopular things um, frequently. And we can talk about what those are, but generally speaking, if you are in the business, of real, <laughs> <laughs> if you're in the business of uh, real estate. Um, over the last five years in particular, it's become very clear that on a risk-adjusted basis, it's a very good idea to build an educational platform of your business of some kind. Now, you can look at some of the other firms that have a billion dollars under management that didn't do this, but this is a new age. And as a investor, we always want to look at things, try to compare risk with reward. And so starting a podcast, for example, it's not like you and I are having this conversation and in the other room, there's 50 people and trying to administer the podcast and I have to pay them all a salary. We paid probably $500 for the setup. Now we're just having a conversation. Um, but through that conversation, we can develop incredibly serious relationships with our listeners without it taking our time on a one-on-one -on -one basis. And so the podcast medium is something that revolutionized our business. I mean, we have a show that has received somewhere around 700,000 downloads. And it is not the intention so that everyone likes me or us. The intention is to get a thousand people to love us. And that allows me to say whatever I want because I'm going to attract the people that agree with me. And um, that's a really powerful mechanism. And you have to overcome some internal and potentially biological fears about that, uh, being disliked by everybody, but really liked by a thousand people. But that's the way the economics of today's society works. What are that's some of those topics that, that folks find um, popular versus unpopular? Or, or, yeah, it's funny ahead. because, you know, sometimes when I get into this, I find that the people that are just know who I am generally, that they don't find these topics too offensive or whatever. So I have to like really push the limits in terms of what, I, what I'm <laughs> talking about. But generally speaking, I'm a philosophical libertarian um, I would consider myself an anarcho-capitalist. I think that the, uh, the market can provide services and products that the government claims to be able to provide, including the police and military. So that right there is like a wildly unpopular belief, but probably 30% of our investors share that belief, um, which is not typical. However, the others that don't, are sympathetic to why I would come to such a conclusion. And that's just one example. I mean, virtually everything in the world that people care the most about, I have unpopular beliefs in education, government, money, et cetera. So, um, but it doesn't matter because I don't really much care about the general public. I care about having high buy-in from just a few clients. And on a proportional basis, there's billions of people in the world 
And I just need to find those right people. Not that you have to be an anarchist to be an investor of ours, but it's going to feel a lot better if you are <laughs> for both of us. <laughs> what, you, um, I've listened to some of your podcasts as well as Jim has. Um, and we, you've already talked a little bit about diving through risk. Do you have like a ratio or how often do you reinvest with the same folks? I'm imagining mm. that happens quite a bit. Yeah. I mean, that's a good question, not just from an investment standpoint strictly, but also from a business plan standpoint. So I was motivated in part to start ASIM because I saw it was taking place in the crowdfunding world and was really turned off by it. You know, I love the world of passive investing. Probably 90% of my portfolio is in passive syndications and or some hybrid where I'm have some sort of role in the deal, but functionally a passive investor in terms of, you know, I'm invested alongside other passive investors. So I, because of the crowdfunding model, it's basically like a VC funded version of Craigslist for real estate. And I didn't like that because I was concerned that passive investors would see the opportunity to invest. And for the first time since, you know, basically the Jobs Act, they could say, oh, wow, I can just Google good real estate investments and everyone's marketing documents look the same. And I can just click here to send the wire. And knowing a lot about this industry as a passive investor, it's much more complicated than that. I mean, there's so many things that someone should be doing to have some sort of third-party accountability on these deals. And it's challenging as a passive investor economically to do them. So as an example, um, flying around the country, looking at properties is burdensome, but someone should be doing that right? So if you're only investing $50,000, you can't fly to Florida one day, go to Texas, spend a hundred hours on due diligence, but we do that stuff. But because it's economically viable, because we're investing two, three, four, five million dollars, it makes sense for us to do so. So with all that being said, I don't want to have 50 operating partners that we're investing with. I want to have somewhere between six and 10 that I feel I can invest with for the rest of my life. And that lends itself to creating really meaningful relationships and going much more deeper on due diligence. And we set up our compensation structure so that we really don't get paid unless investors receive their preferred return. And so all of that means we don't do a lot of deals, but we invest very significantly in the ones we do. I'm usually one of the largest investors in each of our offerings and we invest over and over again with the same partners. That's a great, that's an interesting topic. The relationship that you have with your operating partners how does that change over time so that you're both growing, I guess? Can you kind of talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so it's interesting. I mean, I think a lot of people want to have a template for due diligence, and we certainly do have that, but it's an art and a science. I mean, we have a due diligence checklist, which is extremely robust, but you have to be able to read between the lines in terms of who you're dealing with. So as an example, the underwriting assumptions are very important, not because the accuracy of the Excel model is going to predict the deal, but I'm trying to see who is the person I'm making a bet on. Are they putting themselves in a position to deliver on their promises? Or are they trying to get this deal closed and produce the highest return on the marketing documents, but the implementation, which is actually what matters, is kind of questionable. Um, now, to circle back to your question, people are people, right? And they change. So you have to monitor these relationships on an ongoing basis, people who in 2010 were a perfect fit may not be a perfect fit in 2017. Now, maybe the personality stayed exactly the same, but if a group is successful, their firm should have changed drastically in those seven years. 
And so maybe their goals in 2017 are different. Maybe the types of deals they're looking at are different because they're focused more on the scale that they've created for themselves. And so we've had partners that we love that have grown so much that it no longer makes sense for us to partner together. Now we've had personality changes where we think they're going a little bit of a different direction and all that's fine as long as you're aware of it and you're focused on diversification. So hopefully that's useful for you and the listeners, but um, that's kind of what yeah, yeah, no, that's interesting because that's kind of what I was going to guess is as they mature and, and open up their investment criteria, I'm assuming that if they move in a different direction, sometimes you might say, well, that, that makes sense. I want to make that change with you. So I'm sure if yeah. that what happens, you'll open your doors to other investment criteria. Or yes, to, to a large degree, yes. I mean, the relationships that we have... Um, I defer to them far more than any particular strategy. Now, there are certain things that are going to be off of our risk profile, for example. So if we have a partner that we really love that's doing leveraged land entitlement, I don't really care how much advantage they have or how favorable the returns are. Leveraged land entitlement is a little bit outside of anything we contemplate. It doesn't matter if it's 100% IRR, but there's does that make sense? First of all, before I move forward, like yeah. we want to yeah, look yeah, at yeah, things yeah. on a risk adjusted basis, but within a certain paradigm. So yeah, I mean, there's certain strategies we won't pursue, but at the same time, if that operating partner that we work with for years is now saying, look, there's a great opportunity in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I may have my own thoughts about Albuquerque, New Mexico, but their knowledge about that particular market may far exceed mine in their particular niche, which is why I love the way that we're positioned in the marketplace because it allows us to be diversified. So, yeah. um, and by the way, I love Albuquerque, New Mexico. It's just an example because I maybe wouldn't have thought about it unless a sponsor brought it to my attention as a great opportunity. Yeah. It seems like the larger you grow, like ASIM Capital grows, the more you get like kind of the McKinsey effect where you're helping your uh, GPs or operators. You're also learning from them that you can go apply to other operators. So you guys are getting better and better and you're also helping them improve. Can you talk a little bit about the different types of uh, asset classes you guys are in currently um, and what asset classes you guys are actively uh, avoiding for at uh, this time period? That was kind of where I was going to go with my next question is what to make this question even further to make it more difficult. What, what asset classes have you been led into recently that you didn't think were going to fit into your risk profile if that has happened? Mm. Yeah. So let me, let me break it down in kind of two segments. So the first is that since inception, you know, my thesis was born out of the great of the, out of the great recession. So I basically understood if I can come up with a thesis that makes sense in all stages of the cycle, I'm going to pursue that structure rather than focus on more cyclical investment opportunities. And that means always, right? So I think light value add to stabilize self-storage. I think it makes sense in 2008. I think it makes sense in 2019. I think it makes sense in 2020 and everywhere in between. But it's just a matter of who is implementing the business plan that really matters. The mobile home park business is the same way. Uh, workforce housing, I believe, is the same way. Uh, I can make the argument that a senior living, which I know is kind of interesting right now because of COVID and the unique concerns around the, the transmission of COVID, in those facilities and also the fact that the tenants are more likely to pass away due to COVID. But the overwhelming demographic shifts and the tailwinds of that industry and the amount of investor interest in that industry, I think overrides all of that COVID stuff. You just got to find the right team to implement the plan. So 
senior living, mobile home park, self-storage, uh, and potentially some non-performing debt. I'm always interested in that because I think it makes sense on a risk-adjusted basis. But my allocation may change as the market dynamics change. And I'll give you just, you know, sometimes it can sound like hindsight's 2020 for sure. But, you know, in 2018, I was really excited about the opportunity in retail. And that is something that you probably won't hear much people come in 2020 and say because they don't want to admit. But I didn't invest in retail, but I was pumping on my podcast trust me, there's going to be an opportunity. I know what this feeling feels like, which is that no one wants to touch it. And all of a sudden there's an opportunity for pricing arbitrage, which by the way, in 2018, that's all anyone was looking for. There was no opportunity for discounted investments, but I didn't find the perfect deal, perhaps due to luck. And then in 2020, the real retail apocalypse kind of started and very lucky that I didn't. But that's one where, you know, that would have been painful. You would have had some painful quarterly reports, but we would have overcome it due to diversification. But, um, you know, so there you go. Just being transparent. Yeah. Can you talk about um, like when you're underwriting a deal and doing your due diligence, what are you primarily looking for? I know you mentioned like a light value add. Is it finding a property at a discount that's mismanaged? Are your operator doing that? And you like seeing them bring it to the market? Are you looking for good like macro and micro trends in that uh, city or in that uh, subject property, like cap rate de decompression or cap rate compression? Like, what are you looking for specifically? Yeah. So, I mean, for those that are kind of interested in our due diligence process, I can give you a resource that will just like super, super hack it. And it's far more robust than probably anyone would be interested in other than operators who want to be yeah. prepared for really savvy investors. And you can get that at cfcmentorshipprogram.com forward slash questions. The title of the ebook is 111 questions passive investors should be asking, but it probably should be 111 questions operators should be prepared to answer. Because it's like, if you can answer those questions, you know a lot about your deal and you can court a savvy investor uh, such as myself, uh, because that's basically our whole due diligence process in terms of the initial stream of questions. Now, in that ebook, you're going to find that it's broken down to seven stages, in my opinion, in order of importance. And so the, I'll give you the seven stages really quickly, which again is kind of a hack in itself, but the sponsor is number one. Number two is the on-site manager. Number three is the property performance and the pro forma. Number four is the market itself. Number five is the property specific due diligence. So that's things like the number of units, the industry standard, the comps versus the property, and so on and so. Number six is the legal documents. And I actually missed one in there. I think I said property performance and uh, the trailing financials, but Anyway, you can find it in the ebook. Um, and yes, the legal documents are important, but they are last on the list because they don't really come into play unless things go wrong. And you try to do everything you can to avoid getting into that situation. But um, yeah, CFC mentorship program forward slash questions. You'll get a lot of information there. Perfect. We'll link to that in the show notes. And can you talk a little bit about, um, we haven't really touched on it. What is the advantage to a passive investor in investing in a fund of funds like yourself versus directly with a syndicator? Yeah, that's a good question. And the fund of funds model is, I believe, going to be more and more popular going forward. So without going into too much detail, one of the reasons that people create a fund of funds is that individuals who want to focus exclusively on capital raising can create an entity, pull their investors together, and then invest into another person's deal 
and get favorable terms for doing so so that they can make up for their economics of being in kind of in between the sponsor and the investors. Sometimes if you pull enough investors together, you can actually make it so that the investors in your deal get a better deal than investing going through the sponsor directly. Um, but another reason for that, by the way, is that there's a lot of securities laws around um, getting compensated for raising money. And so this would circumvent them because you're not being compensated for raising money. The investing entity itself is the benefactor of that preferential treatment. And whatever you do at the investing entity is basically between you and your investors. So I have a registered license to sell securities. I have a series 22, but most people don't. And so that's a way to kind of shortcut that. Um, so yeah, that's one example. Another example is that our investors want to deal with me. We have a, a very robust online investor portal that is encrypted and it really streamlines the investment process as well as the reporting afterwards. And they want to rely on our due diligence process. So there's a lot of stuff that you can do to kind of make up for the fact that you may be in between the sponsor and the investors, but the economics themselves don't necessarily need to be less favorable um, if you can negotiate effectively. Yeah. Um, so obviously like the alignment of interest is very important. Open with sharing kind of how you align the economics, both in your fund of funds and then also with the GP or operator to be beneficial for all parties. So everyone wins together. Yeah. So we've done a lot of deals and we want to create investment opportunities that are as favorable as possible for the investor because the number one goal is to protect investor capital, but the number two goal is to scale. And the way that you scale, the way that you grow is you create the types of deals that your really savvy, really wealthy investors are going to go, wow, I should share this with my friends because they're going to be really lucky and they're going to feel like they owe me one if I share this type of deal with them. And so we try to make things as streamlined as possible in terms of economics. Um, one of the ways that we align incentives, obviously, is a co-invest. And um, I don't mean like a, a quote co-invest, I mean a net co-invest, meaning that if there is an acquisition fee or something like that, the net result is that I am significantly invested so that if things go wrong, uh, I'm going to be the first one to care. Um, that's the first thing. Uh, the second thing is that our compensation typically is somewhere between 78 and 80% based on performance above a preferred return. And what that means is that we're compensated based on how the deal does. So there may be an upfront fee, there may be an acquisition fee or an ongoing management fee, but the windfall of compensation only takes place when investors get their capital back and experience that pref mm -hmm. being paid out. And so you can play with the numbers and try to see where that looks. But um, you know, if you were going to say, let's say uh, you would receive a point and a half annualized based on investment amount or capital raised, depending on how you look at it or structure it, that point and a half only comes in year 10 when the assets are liquidated. So that would be a reasonable assumption, by the way. And that's how you actually get wealthy in this space. The asset management fee is like enough to keep the lights on, yep. which you should have, by the way, because it's the only way to deliver a quality experience to your investors. When you get started, you can say, oh, I don't need any acquisition fee. I don't need any asset management fee. And you get to 100 investors and you're like, hmm, too bad I can't hire an assistant yeah. because I have no income. I love, that, the way the way you, <laughs> <laughs> I love the way that you uh, align everyone together on that, and that you guys are getting the bulk of the your funds at the back end once all the hurdles have been met. When you guys are raising funds, um, I'm curious, 
how has investor expectations um, for returns and uh, I guess risk adjusted returns changed over the last eight years that you've been doing this? So we can't help but be human beings. And the human being element is just far more powerful than any kind of market dynamic or you know, the advertising of changing market dynamics is it's very hard to overcome that. So if you invested in 2012 and you experienced an 18% return on your first real estate deal, which a lot of people did because of the Jobs Act and otherwise, you know, in 2014, you're going, okay, well, that was my first one. I barely knew anything at that point. So now watch this. And you may have even gotten your 20% return starting in 2014. But it is mathematically impossible for cap rates to do what they've done over the next 10 years in the previous 10 years. Yep. So we've been trying to make it very clear that our goal always in 2010 or 2020 is to deliver a double digit IRR to our investors. And we were underwriting low double digit IRR to our investors in 2010. And it just so happens that we hit some home runs. So we have to always be cautious about, you know, we sent out a deal recently or not recently, but we closed a deal not too long ago where the net to investor return was 28% on a net IRR basis, which is completely insane. They doubled their money in three years. But that is like, we don't even want to advertise that because that's not a realistic assumption. You can't have a 600 basis point cap rate compression in the mobile home park business starting now. You'd be at a zero cap when we started at a 12 cap. So it's hard to do. We're seeing a lot of firms that have more aggressive underwriting assumption have success right now. But um, this game is played in a multi-generational manner and it works 100% of the time if you don't blow it once. So that's kind of our motto. Yeah. Um, just slow and steady wins the race. And like I said, we just did our first deal in 2020 and it was a non-real estate deal. And we're totally comfortable with that. Yeah. I would love to talk more about that non-real estate deal. But before we uh, switch gears, can you talk through, uh, you obviously see a lot of PPMs from operators and syndicators. What are some of the common uh, assumptions that you see and you quickly realize like, this is a little too aggressive. Um, and that's like what the deal kind of tilts on. Well, you have to read the documents to have a, a spectrum of what's available and what's out there. And if you read the documents and, and go through the underwriting assumptions, you will have a clear spectrum in terms of the marketplace. So as an example, and this is not directly related to what you're asking, but I'll, it's the only way to know. I'll kind of clarify. Yeah. So in our deals, the capital call provision is very straightforward. The only time at which it can be established that additional capital is needed for a deal is if there is a vote and the majority or supermajority, depending on the documents, agrees that additional capital is needed. That's the first step. The second step is uh, the manager can lend the property, uh, the capital that's needed uh, with a predetermined interest rate. If they don't want to do that, the next step is the investors can do it on an individual pro rata basis. The next step is the individual investors can provide additional equity as equity, not debt, on an individual pro rata basis. And if they don't want to, other investors will have the opportunity to fill the gap. If none of them want to, then the next option is to go and get outside third-party financing of some kind, first as debt and then as equity. And I said that was simple because it's simple to me because we've done it so many times, but that may not be the case for your particular deal. It may be the case that at any time, the manager can say, we need an extra $10 million and I just made it so, and now you're required to contribute it. Or if you don't, we'll have an interest rate attached to your interest in the deal. And we can even seize your bank account. 
And that sounds ridiculous, but there are many documents out there that say things like that. And it may be the case that the attorney that drafted them thought that that was the industry standard, but it could also be the case that the reason that that attorney thought that is because not enough people actually read the documents to say, holy crap, this is insane. They're going to take my firstborn child if I don't give them an extra $10 million. So like that stuff uh, makes a difference. In terms of like actual underwriting assumptions, I'd say that something that can create a, a very significant delta in the IRR, obviously the exit cap rate is going to play a huge role. So I would like to see a 10% or 10 basis point um, expansion based on purchase price on an annualized basis until the deal is sold. As an example, if you're buying a six cap today, you should anticipate selling at a seven cap in 10 years. The other one is that I want to be very cautious about seeing a delta between um, expense increases and income increases from rent. So if rental increases are going at 3% per year after they've been brought up to market standards, then expense increases should go at 3% per year because inflation is inflation. It doesn't mean rental inflation doesn't go faster than expense increase. The reason I say that is that if you're doing uh, rental increases at uh, 3% per year and expense increases at 2% per year, that delta can it compounds on itself. So in year seven, eight, nine, ten, that's a huge difference on the IRR. And I can go through every single line yep. item in Excel, but that'll kind of give you a template for some things to look, to, excuse me, to look out for. Yeah, those are the same things I see. Where I've seen some people say that we're buying it at a five cap, but we're going to sell it at a four cap in three years. Yikes, that is scary. And like market rent is going to go up, you know, four or five percent a year, and expenses yep. flatline, which are just two huge red flags in my eyes. Of like this is a uh, very lofty and aggressive, and all the stars have to align for this deal to pencil out. Correct. Um, can you talk through? Uh, so, like, first of all, I've read your book. Which, in case any of your listeners haven't read uh, his book on raising capital, it's a fantastic book if you're interested in doing that. And then also, if you're interested in investing, I think it'd be good to understand the other side of the table. Uh, can you talk through about some of the other stuff you have going on, like with your mentorship and your upcoming uh, program? Yeah, sure. So uh, yeah, the book is Raising Capital for Real Estate and you can get it for free, just pay for, pay for the shipping at raisingcapitalforrealestate.com. And it is not a fluffy marketing document. It is like, in my opinion, humbly, it is the playbook for raising capital in today's environment. And so we talk about how to attract investors, how to nurture them, how to create webinars, how to close investors, how to close investors over the phone versus in person versus it's just very, very robust. And it reads a little bit like a textbook and it's not intended to be a New York Times bestseller, but it is intended to change a few thousand people's lives. That's the goal. Um, so hopefully if you haven't read it yet, get on it and get after it. Um, so yeah, so the book is obviously I want to help the industry, but also it's a lead generation tool for our mentorship program, which is for real estate entrepreneurs. And that's where that uh, questions ebook is hosted. And we also have something that I'm really excited about that I've never done before, uh, which is a summit, that free summit I mentioned, um, which was inspired by our recent raise. So we raised more than $5 million in 30 days. And I kind of had this realization, which is this is a really significant milestone. I mean, we've done it before, but the milestone is significant because so many people want to get to the next level, to the elite 150 unit multifamily apartment level. And you can do it if you can raise $5 million in 30 days. But my book is all, okay, how to raise money, how to attract investors, et cetera, but it's all useless. It doesn't matter how much money you quote can raise unless you can do it in 30 days. 
yeah. because escrow is 30, 60, 90 days and you want to have the money 30 days before the close. So like you, it's a short moment where you confidently, when you sign that purchase agreement, you have to know the money's going to show up so that you don't have to scramble at the last minute, lose the deal, burn the relationships with the brokers. It's all the stuff that I know everyone listening to this probably has been through and myself included. And so I wanted to create a summit where we talk about different thought leaders, elite level capital raisers strategy for how they themselves have put themselves in a position to raise $5 million in 30 days. Now I could do like the whole summit in a hundred days. If I did a little topic about each thing, but I'm just one person. And as I started to record these interviews, oh my gosh, there's so much. We focus on one particular strategy, go really deep on things like how to be a great public speaker, how to be a great article writer, how to be someone that really knows a lot about email marketing. These are all different things that each net, uh, each expert has focused a huge part of their career on. Each of them can put you in a position to raise $5 million in 30 days. And so it's a free summit. We're probably going to have thousands of registrations and you can learn more about that at 5 million in 30 days.com. So it's the number 5 million in 30, the number days.com. And I uh, hope it. to see you there. It's going to be a lot of fun. And how much is that? Free, free 99. But <laughs> free the, there 99. is a catch though. I think people are going to say like, okay, what's the catch? Like, there is a big catch, which is that it's January 6th through the 8th and the interviews are only going to be available for 24 hours. And the reason for this is simple. All the things that I have done not that I've done everything in the world, but the only things that I have done in my life that have been consequential, that have actually changed my, the trajectory of my career, have been as a result of focusing, blocking the time out, committing, and diving deep. Uh, that's why in my book I say, look, this is the play, this is my best attempt at giving you everything I know about raising money. Block out two weeks to read it. And it has the potential to change your capital raising branch of your company. Similarly, I don't want people to go to work, get tired, go to the gym, come home, have to go to dinner. And then they're supposed to learn all the strategies about how to raise hundreds of millions of dollars. So that's the catch. It's free January 6th through the 8th. I love it. And we'll link to that in the uh, show notes. And would you mind just telling our listeners about uh, where they can find you, follow you on your podcast, uh, ASIM Capital? How yeah, I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. So if you're interested in investing passively, we have ASIM Capital, which is A-S-Y-M capital.com. And of course, if you're a passive or active owner, or you're just really interested in economics, uh, the Cashflow Connections Real Estate Podcast is something that I'm really proud of. Um, not because of me, it's not, like I didn't do much of the content, but the guests we've had on are really experts and interesting uh, in a variety of different sectors of real estate and otherwise. So definitely check that out as well. Also free. So Good awesome. Good way to spend the yeah, podcast is great. Well, thanks for coming thanks on, Hunter. We appreciate it. Uh, it's been a pleasure as always. Thanks again, guys.